Good morning. It's so good to be here and to see all of you. What a great day, this Palm Sunday. I uh, just returned from uh, vacation about a week or so ago. It was a much-needed vacation. It was one of those kind of vacations where you go somewhere and you don't do anything. I love those vacations. Uh, now, my, uh, what happens when I typically go on a vacation like that is uh, I spend some time reading. Go figure. And uh, I was, uh, I've been reading a couple of books um, by musicians. I, I, I'm just kind of fascinated by the creative process. I'm not a musician myself, but I've always found it interesting to, to learn from musicians as they think about and making music and how they view the world. And I've been reading Bono's book on, called Surrender. And uh, I, there was another book that I found um, uh, by a man named Nick Cave. And he's an Australian singer-songwriter. Uh, he's been around since the 1980s. Um, comes out of what, what could be called the post-punk alternative style music. I'm not sure that that's something that this crowd listens to very often, but... Um, and actually, uh, yeah, I, I should just say, uh, Nick's music is not for everyone. It kind of reminds me of the recent uh, Nebraska tourism. Uh, Nebraska, it's not for everyone. That's Nick Cave. Uh, he, in fact, he was the head of a, he fronted a group, I think it was called The Birthday Party, and in 1986, they were voted the most violent band in the UK. So uh, I think that's enough uh, disclaimers for you. But uh, he, he wrote a book called Faith, Hope, and Carnage. And the, and the book really is about um, his own sort of spiritual recalibration after the death of his son, which happened in uh, 2015. And uh, one of the, I'm sorry, I, when I think about the death of a child, you know, it kind of affects you. Um, but one of the things that shows up in his book and also showed up actually in Bono's book is the topic of, of longing and yearning and the role that, that that plays in the human spirit and in the making of art. And of course, in spiritual terms, longing and yearning is also very central. And uh, as I was kind of reading about Nick Cave, I decided I would listen to some of his back catalog and some of his music, and there's an awful lot of spiritual themes there. And in fact, at one point in the, in the book, he says that all of his songs come from a place of yearning. One of his earlier lyrics speaks to this. He says, out of sorrow, entire worlds have been built. Out of longing, great wonders have been willed. And as I was thinking about today's passage about Palm Sunday, I was drawn in particular to the theme of longing that shows up, especially where it talks about the stones crying out. But I'll return to that in a minute. Now, our passage today is a traditional passage that you would hear on Palm Sunday. And the event here that's described shows up in all four of the Gospels. And uh, Palm Sunday as a kid when I was growing up, it had to be my absolute favorite day to go to church. Aside from going to Christmas Eve service, 
because that meant you're going home getting presents. You got to come to church, and the reason I loved it so much was home fronts, right? I was a kid, and I still, frankly, am an adult, with an overactive imagination. And so getting the chance to have plants in the service and messing around with them and not getting into trouble, that was just marvelous. I absolutely loved it. I had no idea what Palm Sunday was about. I, I didn't understand what the palm fronds were for. Um, and I certainly didn't know what a quote-unquote triumphal entry was, which of course is also what our passage is called. Over time, I've learned a few things. This is the triumphal entry scene. It marks the culmination of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. And in the Gospel of Luke, that takes up almost the entirety of the middle portion of that book. It also, of course, is the beginning of Holy Week. And if you, if you read the passage, one of the things, of course, that jumps out at you is that there is a celebratory parade happening, right? He's coming into Jerusalem, people are singing songs, etc. But there's something much, much deeper also happening here. In fact, this is probably one of the most overtly and explicitly political passages in the whole of the gospel. And what it makes explicit is that finally we are going to see the culmination of the conflict between Jesus and the powers that be, or between the politics of God's reign that Jesus embodies and the politics of human power. And that confrontation is going to result in a crucifixion, Jesus' execution as a criminal. But that's not the last word about Jesus because he's also raised from the dead. This is a confrontation between the way of Jesus, the way of mercy, the way of compassion, the way of justice, the way of healing, and the ways of the world that are not interested in those things. That's what it means, in a sense, to say that Jesus embodies the kingdom. He embodies all of those realities. Now, the backdrop of this scene is one of anticipation. In fact, if you're kind of aware and you've been reading through Luke, you can sense that the crowd is probably on edge. And of course, they would have been. The crowds in Jerusalem were always on edge around the time of holy celebrations. But in the case of Jesus, news about him no doubt has spread. His deeds of healing, his teaching, his confrontation with the elite on behalf of the people. People are more than likely asking questions like, is this Jesus really the one? Is he the Messiah? Is he David's heir? Does he come to set us free from the yoke of Roman oppression? 
In fact, there's a scene just prior to our passage where a man who is physically blind, nevertheless in faith, can see who Jesus is. And he calls him son of David, which is the first time we hear that phrase since chapter 1 in Luke. So with these questions in the air, Jesus enters the city. But he does so in a way that might feel a little unfamiliar to us, but it would have been very familiar to people in the ancient world. It would have been almost common, and certainly they would have understood what was happening. That's because what's going on here is what's typically called, or what was typically called, a triumphus, or a triumph. And a triumph is a procession, it's a bit of political theater, actually, that you can find examples of throughout the ancient world. The Romans in particular were very good at doing triumphs. What they were meant to do was to reinforce the dominance and the power of Rome, as well as its claims to divinity. Usually, a triumph was, was, was held to mark a great victory in battle. And typically what happened was uh, whoever was in charge of that battle, whether it was a general or one of the emperors, they were at the front of a procession and they would come in wearing laurels on their head and they would usually be in a chariot pulled by four white horses. And as they entered in, there would be other symbols that marked out that they were blessed by the gods, perhaps even divine themselves. And behind them would be a train of the spoils of war, almost certainly enslaved people, but others carrying things uh, from the battle or from the place that was destroyed or overtaken. One of the greatest examples of this actually is still, you can still see in Rome today, it's called the Arch of Titus. And that was built in 79, 80 or something like that. And it actually recounts the sack of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And you can see enslaved Hebrews being dragged into the city behind Titus and Vespasian. And one of them carries the great menorah. A scene of considerable pathos, especially for the Jewish people. And so as this general, as this uh, emperor enters the city, the people would come out. They had to come out. If they didn't come out, they got into trouble. So they had to come out and they would sing songs and they would make statements about how amazing the general was. They, this general killed thousands. That one killed tens of thousands. And the people would be waving palm branches. That's where our palms come from. And usually after this procession this theater ended, the person would make their way to the temple in a city. Now, that sounds somewhat familiar. In fact, in the Gospels, we see Jesus almost immediately goes into the temple. But there's something else going on here as well. For Jesus, yes, comes in in sort of the form of a triumph but he does so in a way that counters the basic themes that you usually see. 
He's not riding a chariot. He doesn't lead prisoners of war. And people are not recounting his acts of violent domination. No, we get almost the exact opposite. Jesus rides humbly into the city on a donkey. People recount his great deeds of healing and liberation and the longing for God's peace is so palpable that the very stones would cry out if they could. Now to be sure, even though there's an opposite, a contrast here, Jesus still comes as a king. He still comes as the embodiment of God's reign. But that is a reign in a kingdom that is not like the kingdoms of the earth. It does not share the same goals. It does not care to humanize people. He comes rather as Zechariah described many years prior. Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He comes as the one who embodies God's shalom, God's peace. To say that he is a king to say that he is the kingdom is to say that his care and his acts of restoration, his concern for the wholeness of people and their healing, their flourishing, that that's what the kingdom of God is. Now as triumphs go, and we have other records of other triumphs, Jesus' entry is in some ways rather untriumphal. And what I mean by that is that typically another key element of a triumph was not just that the people came out, but that the dignitaries from the city came out. And if they didn't come out, again, they would face serious repercussions. Well, there are no dignitaries that come out to meet Jesus. And the only ones who come close to that, the only sort of semi-official figures that we hear about in the story are the Pharisees. And what do they say to Jesus? Shut up. Stop this. This should not be happening. You should silence these people. But Jesus answers to them in this most startling passage, the one that I was drawn to today. He says, I tell you, if these people were silent, then the very stones would shout out. Stones evoke foundations. It's as if he's saying the longing for God's shalom, for God's kingdom to come, is so deep that the very foundations of the earth, the stones themselves, cannot help but be moved, but want this. Now, I don't have to, I don't have time, unfortunately, to go into the whole rest of the passage and Jesus' response. 
But I think that when he does respond to the Pharisees, this is not just an observation that he's making. It's rather an invitation. He's asking them to open their ears, to listen. To listen to the longing in the people. To listen to the longing in the earth. And for even his opponents to listen to the longing that's in their own hearts. Underneath all the other things that would also be in there. Deep down, underneath our other desires is a longing, is a hope that God would make this world new. That the things that we've experienced could be mended or healed. We, our church, is and has been for a while in a time of transition. When I preached on this last week, I, uh, I said that uh, I feel like lately it's uh, one of my preaching sermons are variations on a theme, <laughs> the theme of transition. Last week we had two town halls. One of them talked about vision. The other talked about our budget. We have an annual meeting coming up at the end of this month. We have a Gulick lecture coming up on April 22nd. And all of these events, these gatherings, they are all concerned with the deep question, who are we as a people and a community called to be? Who do we want to be? What do we hope for for this time and this place? What do you yearn for in your life? What do you hope for? What do you want for this community, for our common life together? Do you care perhaps about children or maybe about the earth or some other issue? I'm sure if you do, you take the time to look at it, look at that issue, look at those people, those things that you care about, to see those places where you could make a difference. You want to step in and help mend things that might be broken. To repurpose Nick Cave's earlier lyric, what great wonders might God be calling us into. My prayer today is that we will have ears to hear the longing that's already lodged deep down in our own hearts and that we'll have the courage to follow the voice of the Spirit as she leads us forward. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you chose to go the way that you went. That you took the path, not the easy one, 
but the hard one. That you faced death that we might have life. Open our ears and our hearts, O oh God. Put us in touch with those things that you've already implanted into our minds and help us to see them become realities in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.